You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Mantian, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Anna's back this week. Jeff is also here, and we're bringing you another episode with the five biggest stories on our website this week. We each have about 15 years covering the industry. Right now, we're working for Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News. Every week, we take the five biggest stories in manufacturing and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving us a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email any of us, you can reach us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We're also live this week, so if you want to ask us a question while we're on air, uh, feel free to do that in the comments section, and we'll get to it if it's relevant. If it's not, it's just a waste of your time. <laughs> All right, before we jump into top stories, how you doing this week, Jeff? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing great. I was, uh, you know... Doing a lot of working from home this week as a result of kid-related stuff. And it's just nice to be around, you know, adults. People taller than three feet. Glad to have you. Yeah. Anna, how are you doing this week? I am good. I liked how in your intro you said right now we're working for IN and Manufacturing.net. Yeah. We are like gig workers. Yeah, no. it's uh, It seemed a little... I take it back. It's like we're here indefinitely. I mean, we are right now. Right now, yeah. Yeah. You weren't wrong. Yeah. You weren't wrong. Uh, yeah, I know, but it didn't feel right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are very committed. No. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, let's jump into top stories this week. All right. Our first story, Colt poised for U.S. comeback. In May, Cheska Sabrovka Group brought, bought Colt Holding Company for $222 million. The gunmaker is based in the Czech Republic and wants to parlay the Colt name into more market share around the world and contend for some U.S. military contracts. Until recently, the company's production primarily operated in the Czech Republic. The Colt deal came with factories in the U.S., which satisfies the U.S. military's Buy America requirement. CZG believes it could lead to big business, and the company projects to more than double its new size in just a few years. That would put it in the same league as Smith & Wesson and above Sturm, Ruger & Company. CZG plans to introduce and produce new non-Colt products in the U.S. and upgrade the primary Colt factory in West Hartford, Connecticut. Jeff, it sounds like at least more jobs coming to Connecticut. Yeah, it could be. Um, I I thought it was interesting in in taking a look at this that Colt was talking about, or excuse me, CZ, by the way, Congratulations for not just going CZG, actually oh, yeah. saying the company name. Mm-hmm. Um, kudos on that one. Yeah, you like how I nailed Cheska Zabrovka <clears throat> and then Rukna ruined bot? <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting that they were going after or talking about military sales when really the growth is on the consumer side, um, especially when we look at handguns. Well, we, there's been some incredible spikes in sales when you look at handguns. A couple of the biggest ones, when the pandemic first started last March, we saw total firearm sales increase by almost 100%. Went mm-hmm. from like 1.3 to over 2.5 million handguns sold in the month of March in 2020. And most of that growth came from handguns. That's because oh you can shoot the virus. Oh. <laughs> I think. Wow. Is, I did not. I was think. not aware. Mm-hmm. I mean, makes sense. Uh, another one, and we look at June of 2020, another huge spike, almost 2.4 million firearms sold. Again, a half million more of those were handguns. We saw similar spikes again in October um, and in March of this year and January of this year as well. And a lot of that is sort of a reaction to things politically, oh, yeah. uh, some of those firearm sales. But I just thought it was interesting that Colt was talking again about 
military. And when you talk about the military, that's typically rifle sales or mm-hmm. long gun sales, as they like to say. So it just seems like the growth opportunity is more in handguns. Speaking of which, it's kind of interesting. Colt has sort of gotten a rejuvenation from their Python model. They actually mm-hmm. discontinued this handgun, or it's a revolver, actually. Okay. Um, in 2000 or 1999, actually, was the last year they were doing it. But apparently, and I don't, I've never watched Walking Dead. Mm. I don't, I know it's a huge show. I know it's hugely yeah. popular, but one of the main characters in there actually uses a Colt Python. Oh. So last year, they brought that revolver back into production. Okay. So they've got some interesting things moving here and it makes sense for them wanting to rejuvenate that business. It was just interesting to see what they're talking about as their strategic plan versus some of the maybe counter prevailing market dynamics mm-hmm. that are they're going right now in the U S at least. Yeah. It's a good show. It's a better book. Okay. <laughs> uh, Anna, what were your thoughts on this story? Um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, you know, that the executives are targeting a billion dollars in sales. And Jeff kind of walked through some of their plans, and you did too, about mm-hmm. what they're planning to do. A lot of it is a little bit strategically vague at this point, I think. Um, one analyst quoted by Reuters called it ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, like CZG says they're going to reveal investment plans later in the year. And these should include, as you mentioned, upgrades to the plant, um, making up for what it calls underinvestment in the past. Mm-hmm. I guess my... Uh, Big question is, we know they lost that key contract with the military over the M4, over quality issues, right? right? Yeah. Um, They've had kind of a spotty presence on and off in the U.S. market since then due to their bankruptcy, the sell-off. Is there brand damage in your mind that's maybe not being accounted for here as they make this massive projection for the future? I mean, to Jeff's point, like there's been this, you know, years of gun buying bonanza. Mm -hmm. Um, This would have been a great time to build brand loyalty and Colt was largely in like a rebuilding mode, I think. Um, and then purchased by a European company, which means it's longstanding legacy as an American gun maker, which goes back to like the 1850s, I believe, um, you know, kind of takes a hit there. Uh, so this growth strategy, I think relies not only on the U S military, but also heavily on the consumer market. Do consumers know and care that Colt is now owned by a European company? I, that's, that's a real question. I don't know. <clears throat> I don't think they care about that. I think what's happened, though, is I think you, you nailed it a little bit. It's become really a legacy brand, and the new buyer isn't necessarily that worried about it being a Colt. When you've got other brands out there like Smith & Wesson and Remington, mm-hmm. especially when you look at rifles for hunting, mm-hmm. Colt's not really there. you know. And when you look at their main, what they're really known for are revolvers, that's not really what most people are looking for. If you're a collector, if you're somebody who just likes to shoot, then you are going to do that. But with a lot of these sales coming from personal defense, people wanting to feel safer, mm-hmm. people having concerns about potentially them not being available down the line, they're looking for more of a pistol, which yeah. is like a semi-automatic mechanical movement. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they bounce back from this. The one thing I wanted to point out, too, just in terms of stats and gun mm-hmm. purchasing, and we know it's all gone like kind of crazy during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Looking at some stuff here from Statista.com, in June of 19, it's basically the low point for the last two and a half years, mm-hmm. about 850,000 firearms. Yeah. doesn't matter, handguns, whatever. Firearms sold in the U.S. It was actually down a little bit in April, and it was still a million more Yeah, firearms yeah. <clears throat> sold per month. Jeez. Yeah. So it's, I can understand why they want to get into it. Not sure if they're going the right place or if that's really what they're going to do. I mean, maybe yeah. they're, they're just saying that right now. A couple of points there, uh, and I want to get into the stats a little bit more, too. Uh, my point is that Colt goes back 175 years. Mm-hmm. And so while it did, you know, it lost that M4 contract back in 2013, and that was a huge hit for the company. It's the reason it went bankrupt. Um, but I think that 
is seen more as a military specific problem where cult has such a nearly 200 year old legacy that that is bigger than the problem. You don't think that that took any sort of, there was any erosion of that during those years? I think there was, but I think that there is a heavier, um, a heavier sell in nostalgia right now, mm-hmm. um, particularly now, than there is on potential problem, uh, reliability problems. I mean, I think those are easy to overcome when they say we're a new manufacturer with, that is reinvesting in new production capabilities. And I mean, uh, I guess in a market where everybody's buying everything, yeah. What's another cult in the collection? But they're not even a top 10 manufacturer. They're not a top 10 in sales right now in the U.S. Right. And when you do look at handguns, people are thinking about Berettas and Lugers and things like that that have a brand name. To say you have a Colt revolver, that was cool 50 years ago. Yeah. Now it's more like how many rounds can you put down range how quickly? Yeah. And if you're looking at a revolver, that's not what they do. Yeah, but it's uh, but this company, CZG, also has, is relatively well-known in uh, handguns. I think they're just looking to add this as another brand to the product line. Okay. Um, uh, the company that actually took the contract from them, FN America, recently won another M4 contract worth $120 million through mm-hmm. 2025. So if they were looking to get back into that game real quick, they're not going to. It's not going to happen yeah. right, right away. Um, now, going into the stats a little bit more, Jeff, according to the ATF, there were more than 9 million handguns manufactured between or in 2018 in the U.S. alone. That's for domestic and global sales, but that doesn't include military sales. That's that's another thing about Colt. You know, we're talking about private sales, but a lot of Colt and CZG's sales go to local law enforcement also. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, since 1986, the U.S. has just created this flood of firearms. The high watermark was 2016. There was 11.5 million firearms manufactured in the U.S., which is insane to me. And since 2013, we've made 5.8 or 58.1 million guns in the five years from uh, 2013 to 2015. We've made more guns in the U.S. than we did between 1986 and the year 2000 combined. Okay, so I can't explain all of that. Yeah. But what I would say is when you look at hunting, mm-hmm. it has become a lot more specialized in terms of the firearm that you're going to use. There's a lot more bird hunting and stuff going on. I just know organically. Maybe you do in talking to folks too, but you've got your deer gun. You've got your turkey gun. You've got your pheasant gun. So as people have more discretionary income potentially to spend, and they're doing more of this type of stuff now, especially in the last year and a half, I can justify that somewhat in that respect. I don't know if it's broken down, um, you know, by type. Yeah. No, this is just just total sales. I mean, let's say all the bird hunters out there get an extra gun. I don't know that. <laughs> no, I, I get it. And like I was just saying, too, most of the growth is from handguns. Yeah. I think whenever – and we saw the same thing when President Obama was elected. Oh, yeah. People get really, really worried about their Second Amendment rights, and mm-hmm. there is always this rush on firearms. Um, I'm not going to get into all that, yeah. but it's just – it's one of the market dynamics. So it's some of these gun makers, it's almost like when a Democrat gets elected for president – they're they're gearing up. Like yeah. they're getting ready because they know there's going to be a run. I mean, at some point, there ha- the market has to be oversaturated, right? I know we haven't hit that point yet, but there has to be some fear for CZG that that might happen, right? Yeah, I it mean, doesn't. It, see, it, I mean, if you look at all the stats, there's no signs of slowing. You know, I'm, right. I mean, other than the high water mark in 2016, it's. Uh, I don't know. It was. It's just, a different size now. I yeah. mean, before there were fluctuations, but now it's just it's up and it's staying up. Yeah. Uh, oversaturated? I mean, you hope so. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> right. the point, right? Right. 
next, I mean, at least this will have a run on the safe market because they'll have to make significantly larger gun safes. Another thing, too, from a business perspective, you didn't hear Colt at all talk about ammunition. Mm-hmm. Like, that's one of the big supply chain issues right now is finding ammo. Oh, it's yeah. very true. Yeah. yeah. Good point. All right. Our next most popular story this week, Toyota scraps V8 in pickup redesign. Toyota is voiding the V8 engine. The company redesigned the Tundra and swapped the 381-horsepower, 5.7-liter V8 with base 389-horsepower, 3.5-liter twin-turbo V6 or an optional gas-electric hybrid system with 437 horsepower. The changes needed to meet stricter U.S. fuel economy requirements. The old V8 got only 13 miles per gallon in the city and 17 on the highway. The company hasn't said what the mileage expectations are for the new engines or released pricing expectations, but it will be made in San Antonio, Texas. Anna, what were your thoughts on Toyota ditching the V8? Well, it was sort of interesting because this article talks about the Tundra in the context of its competitors Mm -hmm. and how nobody else has dropped the V8. Um, But if you look at how Toyota's engineers are kind of presenting this redesign to the market, they make it sound like they want it to be different Mm -hmm. and that they're moving away from the highly competitive work truck market and into what they're calling. This is something new. Um, So they want to they want to change the perception from a work truck to a fun truck, a fun truck, a fun truck. Mm. and let's be real, the Tundra isn't exactly like owning the work truck market right now. So like th- this this works out well. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. But I guess, I don't know, like who is the fun truck market? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not like the Tundra is cheaper than the F-150. It's really not. Mm-hmm. Um, those other vehicles are really nice and they outperform the Tundra. So I don't know exactly like, you know, you see those prices like creep up really quickly with add-ons and things. And so then obviously pickup trucks have become the most expensive kind of vehicle that you can buy. So maybe there's a market for this sort of for fun pickup that's got better fuel efficiency, but they're not cheap. So like I kind of wondering where this gray air exists and I don't know if you guys have any input on that. Like fun, (laughs) but expensive, fun, but expensive truck. truck. Yeah. Um, uh, My take on that was just, so Ford recently did a survey and they saw that more women were driving pickup trucks and actually making up 46% of customers. Yeah. So maybe they're targeting that demographic. Sales are also trending younger with 27% being 34 years old or younger. But then the next largest segment is actually from 55 to 64 years old. So mm-hmm. I can't imagine that if you're 55 to 64, many of those guys are going for a work truck. Um, I don't, I think that they are though. I mean like, yeah, no, you they're going to see- re- retire into a fun truck. Okay. No, um, uh, or maybe a lighter duty, still big truck. But uh, Ford said that, I mean, kind of to your point of the fun truck, you know, it's part of the family. Um, and actually, uh, I would actually, I just want to kick that over to Jeff first before we go into this point. Uh, what do you think about it being a fun truck? You know, is the, a fun truck going to make them stop being the third most popular pickup in the U.S. and uh, bump it up to one or two? No. And I think I don't think I they, don't think they're even the third. Yeah, they're okay. looking over the last five years, somewhere between five and eight. So it's okay. it yeah. is a little bit gutsy in terms of what they're doing and taking something out of a lineup that's been successful. It, it definitely has its place in the market. Um, looking at some of the folks that do navigate more towards the Tundra than say the F one fifty or something like that, something similar to Silverado, they do have the highest percentage of female buyers. Mm. Um, the Tundra, the Tundra. Does. Does. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. Um, and that was according to who do we have here. Uh, uh, I'll have to get back to that one. 
referring to hedge hedge company hedgescompany.com they did a breakdown of of truck dynamics truck buyer dynamics mm-hmm. or demographics I'll spit it out here eventually. <laughs> um, truck buyer demographics, the Tundra has the most female buyers. So I think there's that. But it was gutsy going away and changing something in the lineup. At the same time, it does echo a lot of different strategic movements in the automotive market right now, going to an engine that's more efficient as mm-hmm. opposed to just focused on power. What's interesting, when I first saw this, I'm like, oh, they're, they're going to smaller, less powerful type vehicles. There's actually more horsepower mm-hmm. in the engine that they're yeah. going to. Yeah. So it's not so much that they're losing power. They're not losing speed, things like that. It's just more for hauling stuff. The, the the towing capacity is a little bit smaller. It won't be as good for like the stuff Anna alluded to, being a work truck. When I've always looked at a Tundra, I've always thought they were cool looking trucks. Yeah, They do have a different line to them than mm-hmm. the F-150 or the Silverado or the GMC Sierra. So I think there is an element that that fun truck maybe isn't the best moniker to use to describe it. Yeah, But it is a more stylish vehicle potentially. I think that does resonate with, in this case, you talked about female buyers. They also said it has a little bit higher... Um, purchasing level from Hispanic owners. Hmm. So if you look at those two groups, and maybe they are looking for something that is a little bit more sporty going around town. Um, we've seen you know sedans and station wagons go the way of the Dodo. So yeah. this is a good alternative um, for those types of buyers. I mean, it can still tow up to 12,000 pounds and haul 2,000 pounds in its bed. So I mean, when we say it's a fun truck, like it can still get around just fine. You know, It might not uh, haul the bobcat behind it, but... Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can still do quite a bit of work with it. Um, the interesting part of this Ford survey that I uh, kind of found was that, uh, again, going with the fun truck and being a part of the family, is that Ford found that 25% of people give their truck a name. And that actually seemed kind of low to me. How many percent? <laughs> 25%. A quarter of the people. Do you have name a name their for truck. your... Uh... I, d- I don't. I stopped naming cars once I started naming people. <laughs> I had enough to. I had enough to take care. Of. Well, your kids will take care of that. Oh yeah, they'll start naming them. Yeah. yeah. Also, like as I bought newer cars, I guess like when I had the '98 Neon, she needed a name. You know, like what was the name? It was just Betty. It was just. I mean, just, just she was Betty. red. You know, she was red. She was classy. You just insulted all of our listeners out there with the name Betty. Yeah. Like it was just like that's plain. Yeah. No, Be- Betty didn't have all of her doors. Just a so lot you know. of love for Betty's out there. She had there. the doors, just no door panels. Oh yeah. yeah. The door panels. That's right. You so don't we, need those. When we knew David needed a raise. Um, still waiting. Um, the other thing that this survey found was that fifteen uh, percent of truck owners have a tattoo of their truck or something related to their truck. On their body. No. Yeah. Is I mean, Calvin involved in the tattoo? <laughs> oh, I don't know. If, or like Woody the Woodpecker, if it's that one. Um, I don't know that I've, I mean, I guess I've never had anything I've wanted to tattoo on my body, let alone something vehicle related. <laughs> that cannot possibly be true. I don't know. That seems, boy, that's high. I, I don't know. The name I get, especially with like, it's got some miles on it. It's got some character to it. But yeah. man, tattoo. Wow. Yeah. I'm that's just dedicated. Thinking, of all these new female truck owners that are tattooing fun truck onto their shoulders. I'm sure that's where it's going. Maybe a lower ankle. All right. Uh, have either of you guys uh, tattooed car-related insignia on your bodies? How long have you known us? I'm just saying. I mean, every once in a while, we're going to cover something new. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have more stories to cover in this? or? Uh, yeah, but they are all actually dodging the question. Let's, let's move on from this. Yeah, there's more there. We're getting back to that <laughs> on the final thought. All right, uh, <laughs> all right. Our next most popular story this week: Lucid unseats Tesla as electric vehicle range king. 
Tesla's reign atop electric vehicle driving range is over. For now, anyways. The EPA recently certified that a new sedan from startup EV maker Lucid Motors can travel 520 miles per charge. It's the first time an EV has eclipsed the 500-mile range mark. Now, the rated car is the Lucid Air Dream Edition, which is going to cost $170,000 before incentives. It is steep, but Lucid plans to unveil a more economical Air that will be below $70,000 after incentives. The base model will be more in line with a Tesla Model S long range. Now, Jeff, this reminded me of, we see this all the time, they build the really good one to make the headlines and beat all the records, and then they make a couple to make it in production, <laughs> you know, a production car. And then it goes back into, yeah, the other one's basically going to be an S. Yeah, I mean, you want to be optimistic here in mm-hmm. terms of what they're, they're trying to put out, but 170 grand, that is not for everybody. No. You know? No. Um, that is not, and give, uh, give, there is some comparisons here with Tesla. I mean, Musk made some pretty grandiose oh. um, projections too when he was first coming yeah, out. And so. what did a Roadster cost? I mean, that was. I think the base was it was actually close when I looked on Lucid's website when they mm-hmm. looked at their base vehicle, the Lucid Air. I mean, they're saying it starts from seventy eight. Mm-hmm. Now that's where it starts. <laughs> yeah. If you want to, you know, have a door handle, it probably goes up. Yeah. So, but a lot of power in these vehicles. Lucid's got going for it. Impressive mileage range. So you would hope. I mean, it would be positive if there is a real competitor for like the Model Three out there and to push Tesla in some of these other areas, because the bigger automakers aren't there yet. Mm-hmm. Their EVs don't have this kind of horsepower. They don't have this type of driving range. And really, even a lot of the creature comforts that we've gotten used to, mm-hmm. um, those, those are going to cost you a lot more with some of those other EVs. So you want to take this sort of for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. They've come out with a new vehicle. It's super expensive. It's got great technology behind it. It's not for everybody right now. Yeah. And I believe Lucid has only put out about 7,000 vehicles to date. Mm-hmm. They've only produced. So hopefully as they get ramped up, they're the ones down in Arizona, right? Right, yeah. Um, you know, Hopefully they can um, spread this technology throughout their entire lineup and yeah. make it a truly, um, you know, ideal competitor to Tesla or a real competitor to Tesla. Right now, it's just it's kind of not. Uh, and I feel like this setting the mile range record is going to be something that goes back and forth. I mean, for mm-hmm. the foreseeable future. For sure. Um, I think the writing has been on the wall in terms of like the battery wars that are brewing. Mm-hmm. I think Jeff is like mostly right that the auto industry at, as a whole is not here. But mm-hmm. I do think that there's one automaker that is kind of creeping up on everybody, and that's GM. Um, I think that the Lucid battery could maybe be dismissed by the general public as sort of, I don't know. <laughs> It's so new, and like you, we all had all that smoke and mirrors with Lordstown. I think people are a little bit yeah. skeptical of a new company and their claims, even though this was validated by the EPA. But, mm-hmm. um, but uh, GM has been doing a lot of work on their Ultium battery, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't quite get there on the range uh, that that Lucid has here. This five five twenty, I think it's closer to like four hundred than five hundred, mm-hmm. but. Um, GM says that its Ultium now costs 90% less than the battery pack that it was featured in its first electric, which was the Chevy Volt in 2010. Um, And so GM says that this allows the company to actually be profitable on EVs, Mm -hmm. um, which could mean that they might have a massive upper hand when they go to market with a lot of these new models that they're putting, um, you know, they're putting together now. It will be interesting to me to see if people are willing to pay 
for this kind of super range, like <laughs> 500 plus range. Yeah. Um, or if they're comfortable enough around like 400 to get that at a lower price point. And I know where I would be. Oh, yeah. So I think I'm the same way. I think it'll be interesting to see really who kind of takes a hold of that market. I mean, obviously, you know, we've acknowledged that Lucid mm-hmm. is this is a premium product. This is not a product for every driver. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, if it comes down to this race for a, a mileage range, I don't know. I think price is going to be maybe a bigger issue for a lot of people. Yeah. When, back in 2018, when uh, Saudi Arabia dumped about $1 billion into Lucid, they called Lucid, the Lucid Air, the or Lucid Motors, the Tesla killer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember, yeah. And if this is the price point, it is not killing Tesla. No, it's, it's gonna, not. It's going to hang out on the fringe. It's a beautiful, it is. they yeah. make beautiful cars. Yeah. It's a beautiful car I would love to look at, perhaps at a show. Right. And just be like, you know, because especially, we talk a lot about how uh, people aren't ready to adopt the technology. And uh, when I hear GM's price point coming down, you know, mm-hmm. those are things that I'll entertain. This is a story where I was like, oh, it better range? Nice. Oh, not a chance for that price. Right. Well, I think that's where, when we're talking about this, they really, if, if EVs overall, forget who's making them, mm-hmm. really do want to be competitive. They do need to have the range. And it's not even because it's needed. It's because of the peace of mind element. It's yeah. because oh, it's yeah. getting over that, that stigma, that mindset. And I'll admit I'm guilty of it right now. I've started to soften on it. Mm-hmm. But it's just knowing I've only got so many miles I can go before that battery dies out. People yeah. are afraid of that they're going to get bricked somewhere. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, it's kind of ridiculous because you have the same thing right now with your gas tank. Mm-hmm. Oh, when yeah. I turn on, it's not 500 miles for a full tank of gas. Yeah. You know? Actually, it is. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's still, they do have to be competitive there, but the price point has to be at least equal yeah. before it's really going to start making a dent. We beat this into the ground, but it's still, when you look at U.S. automotive sales, EVs are still only like 1% of the total. It's, uh, you know, people can hear that stat that like, what is it? We only drive like 30 miles on average a day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they don't hear that. They hear 500 mile range yeah. safer. Uh, I thought that it is also worth noting that Tesla has come out and said that it's working on a vehicle that should be able to have a range of more than 600 miles on a single charge. Mm-hmm. So just a matter of time. It should. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, We're working on ideal it. Ideal conditions. It has... Solar panels on the roof. Is that via Twitter? Hmm? Oh, yeah. I, I just left out the part where it said, Tesla CEO Elon Musk said in a tweet. Okay. I mean, they have, I mean, they've dismantled their entire public relations department. So that's it. It's just Twitter. It's Twitter. It's yeah. Just, yeah. It's not even, it's not a joke. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> All right. <clears throat> Our next most popular story this week, Harley Davidson launches an e-bike. Harley Davidson's Serial One has launched the S1 Mosh Tribute e-bike. The news comes about a year after Harley started the spinoff company and built a prototype based on its oldest known motorcycle, the 1936 EL Twin. The e-bike has a lithium-ion battery integrated into the frame with a range of 35 to 105 miles. It can go up to 20 miles per hour, but it will cost you $6,000. They hope to start shipping later this year, and the company is only going to make 650 of them. Anna, when I heard that they were only going to make 650, I feel like I understood their expectations. I think that's (laughs) enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's so expensive. Yeah. Like, I couldn't find another e-bike that costs more than Mm $2,000. And the average price, according to the internet... Is like six to eight hundred dollars. Yeah. So at six thousand dollars, I know that this is a high end product. Yeah. But isn't Harley 
perhaps falling into the same trap that it does with motorcycles. Because yeah. it's been well documented that Harley has a demographic problem. Their sales are struggling. They are like, this is why they're doing e-bikes, right? They're trying to appeal to a younger generation. But another problem that they have and a thing that works against them is people, their, their bikes are expensive and people's perception of their bikes is mm-hmm. they're too expensive. Yeah. So they just took away all that fear with an enormously, immensely expensive I don't get it. It's e-bike. the most oh. expensive e-bike on the planet. So, you know. Like, but it says Harley. I know that they're, I, I, it's my understanding that they're planning, that this is a, a specialized product. Mm-hmm. This is a premium product and it's a small run, right, that they're planning to make other less expensive, probably more, you know, general public type e-bikes. But why publicize this you know mm-hmm. what i mean because all you do is add to that perception that your brand is out of reach for millennials or whatever customer base that they like currently cannot reach because it's been well documented that they cannot mm-hmm. uh i don't know i just it, didn't I, it didn't make sense to me from a marketing standpoint but it didn't make sense to me either and jeff don't you think that as harley continues to try and tap other markets it potentially alienates its hardcore group of fans yeah, there's a weird convergence of stuff with this one. I mean, mm-hmm. there's got to be somebody at Harley who's been there a while, who's in a room, and they're putting this together. And he's like, where have we come from? Yeah, We went from designing $30,000 hogs to $6,000 e-bikes. Man, mm-hmm. what has happened here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it is, like you said, they've had a branding issue for a while because there is that stigma attached. And they are working to reverse that. I think what this is meant to get headlines and show them that they're really committed to mm-hmm. these lower-cost, more environmentally friendly, alternatively-powered bikes yeah now what's what's really kind of funny here and they only this is a limited edition this is a special thing this is a promotional item in mm-hmm. my opinion yeah i agree i just think it's a bad promotion <laughs> <laughs> what's funny is you mentioned the price point you can buy a new harley yeah for seven eight thousand dollars now mm-hmm. those are those street the street riders that they have i think it's the 750 mm-hmm. um that they have out there now um yeah the hd street 500 starts at about seven grand and the 750 is about 7,500. Yeah. So, <laughs> or you can have a, a banging pedal bike. Yeah. And that's the thing. When you put out these special editions and big time car maker like Porsche does this and Lamborghini does this mm-hmm. and they put out these crazy James Bond edition, you know, mm-hmm. vehicles, there's because they're relying on that core audience. And like you said, there's no core audience here. There's not a mm-hmm. Harley guy is not going to be going after an e bike just because it says Harley Davidson. Right. This mm-hmm. is a totally new demographic. So, this is, this is a weird convergence of different demographic factors i mean how many are they making 650 650 yeah it'll be interesting to see how many they sell yeah you know? i feel like those are going to wind up being giveaways at the company raffle at well the end in of the 20 year. years they'll be collectors I yeah imagine, so well i found it interesting because it was modeled after the el which came out in 1936 and in 1936 they only made 1700 of those bikes mm-hmm. els and then another bike called the es however they made a lot of changes to it, and sales actually exploded the next year for the 1937 model. It went up to almost like 12000 in sales. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if maybe they think this is something like they'll make a splash with this, change a lot of things to it, make it more economical, and maybe they're hoping to make to sell more. But like, what I'm concerned about is like it is a very cool-looking e-bike, and it looks a lot like the 1936 EL. But like, does it outside of that, does it – Get gain anything, any value from having the Harley Davidson name on it? Yes. Yeah. To certain people. Okay. Right? But like Anna said, not to the core demographic that they're trying to win over. Yeah. Those folks are not Harley enthusiasts that they're trying to get into these less expensive bikes. Mm-hmm. This is the newer generation. 
so it, it's like I said, it's a really, I understand what they're trying to do. And you want to be positive about the fact that they're trying to demonstrate their commitment to this new product offering and to this new audience. But they've also priced it so far above them that it almost sends a negative message yeah. in terms of what they're doing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's kind of fighting itself, really. So, Anna, another thing about Harley that's huge is their merchandising. Like, you're not just, you're not just on a bike. A lot of times you're wearing all of their gear. Yeah. So is this, are we going to see a culture shift with uh, Harley accessories as well? Like, you know, we think of all that, like, uh, biker gear. Like, yeah. what is, I just imagine all these people on e-bikes. With, like, spandex. Yeah, with, like, with- spandex and the, like, affliction-style T-shirts with, that are all, you know. Or is it, like, does Harley all of a sudden start making, you know, flannels and beanies? Yeah, you can't wear leather on an e-bike, probably. And I mean, if your target buyer is a 22-year-old vegan, yeah. then you got to change up some of your merch. Vegan chaps. Vegan chaps. That's got to be a thing. Hey, they want the best of both worlds. Yeah. yeah. They'll do them both. Yeah. It's just, uh, I wonder whether or not uh, they gain, like, the e-bike uh, company gains as much value from the Harley name as the Harley brand and motorcycle brand no. potentially loses no. from the association. I don't think it loses, but I don't think they're going to realize that gain like they had hoped. Yeah, mm-hmm. people I, aren't paying for that name. No, I think people. It's a nice to have. I think Harley uh, enthusiasts see something like this and are just like, "What are you doing?" Like, they, yeah, or they ignore it. Yeah, so it doesn't. Re- again, it doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the vegan chaps business after this podcast. I think we could Let's I'm put out. together a business I'm plan. Out. Jeff I mean, is out. A, a plant-based chap. I'm sure that would, you know, definitely hold up well under stress. Yeah, you make it out Go of like mm-hmm. mushrooms or dried kombucha or something. <laughs> um, dried kombucha. We're gonna chaps. we're gonna put a pin in the vegan chaps. We we will. Although, uh, if the, I mean, it's probably already out there. Um, cow-friendly chaps. All right, our top story this week really excites me. A 39-year-old wins a candy factory in a scavenger hunt. On August 29th, a year-long treasure hunt inspired by Willy Wonka came to an end. 39-year-old Andrew Moss found, found a golden ticket buried under the Vermont Covered Bridge in Kokomo, Indiana, and won a 4,000-square-foot Florida candy factory. The game spanned the nation, with some 35,000 people solving riddles in search for golden tickets in each state. The scavenger hunt was the brainchild of 74-year-old David Candyman Klein, the man behind the Jelly Belly brand. Klein handed Moss the keys to his Sandy Candy plant, which makes edible sand art treats. Moss lives in Colorado and is married with two kids that he didn't want to uproot. So he's working on a deal. <laughs> he's- Sorry, you kind of paused there. He said didn't want. Yeah. To uproot. Oh, sorry. <laughs> he lives with his wife and two kids that he wants so much he didn't want to move them to Florida to make Sandy Candy. <laughs> so Klein is going to buy back the factory from him. Now, Moss says that the chase was the real reward and the money is all gravy on top. And Anna, Moss's dedication to his family aside, <laughs> I found this to be... An incredible story. I found it to be so unbelievable that I do not actually believe it. Um, I don't know. I was not holding my breath when this campaign was first announced because it was so insane and far-fetched. And then did you see the video that they produced to, like, 
put out the so the Candyman and his wife they like made this video at home okay put it out to like promote the game mm-hmm. but it was like the most low budget oh, yeah. thing I've ever seen and so I was like this isn't real mm-hmm. um, but then they did it and I think we still need to see how this plays out yeah because <laughs> despite the fact that this guy solved the riddles and won the game there's been very little about the candy factory it was almost like a like a aside in the article about like like the candy factory was such an outrageous prize like it's something nobody wants so why was it offered as the top prize right now all that's been said is that like what he's gonna he's working out a deal for the original owner to buy it back back, from him candy man's gonna Um, take back his kingdom yeah like is this some kind of a tax trick like i'd be interested to see how this plays out because like can you imagine your boss creating a viral marketing campaign mm-hmm. where the end result is a stranger gets handed the keys to your business mm-hmm. like maybe he calculated out the brand visibility value and he was like this is going to be worth the gamble but i don't i, I don't know i i will be I mark my words in three months, we see a story where this guy gets interviewed and says, yeah, I like, we were trying to work out this deal for him to pay me for the factory. And then he just disappeared and I haven't heard from him. Like, that's my guess. I don't think, I mean, I think you're just in a troubled place right now. I think it's way more uh, good spirited. Yeah. No, no, it's uh, because I mean, I think, uh, well, (laughs) to, to the quality of the video, if you have not seen the commercial for Sandy candy, just watch that gem and you'll understand that that's kind of their wheelhouse in terms of quality. And I mean, when we're talking about a factory being the big prize, mm-hmm. yes, it is. But we're talking about like build your own pixie stick, sort of like they only sell these kits of like edible sand that you like make your own pixie sticks with this different flavor sand. I'm not sure how big it is, mm-hmm. but I think it was an incredible promotion. They did it across 50 states. And I mean, all the other people still won like $1,000 for finding the golden ticket in every other state. Mm-hmm. So I think that lends a fair amount of legitimacy to it. That, uh, But maybe you're skeptical as well, Jeff. No, I think this actually has a much happier ending from yeah. my perspective. Have you guys looked into David Klein at all? Yes. Background a That's why bit? I have like 30 notes. This man oh. is exciting. Well, I, here's what I think. Am I stepping on your toes here? No, no, no. no. I'll just check him off. So, because to me, when I looked at this story, because he is like the undisputed founder creator of Jelly Belly. Yeah, yeah, I'm aware. However, Mm -hmm. (laughs) his story actually reminds me a lot of that movie, The Founder. Yeah, McDonald's. Yeah, 100. percent Because basically, he was the he sold out of Jelly Belly. He has not been affiliated with that company since 1980. Mm -hmm. He had a partner. They got bought out. Sounds like there was some issues between them and basically the contract manufacturer was making this and the contract manufacturer was basically going to just start making the exact same thing, but call it something else and sort of stop doing business with these guys. Mm -hmm. Instead, they bought him out for like $5 million. Yeah. So they gave him $20,000 a year and he had to split it with his partner Mm -hmm. for 20 years, $20,000 a month for 20 years. So he didn't have a ton coming in. He was getting covered. I mean, it was all legit deal and everything like that. But his big thing was not being given the credit. He really wasn't sore about the money. He wasn't Mm -hmm. sore about the deal. He just wanted credit for creating this awesome candy. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're going to talk about Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The president loved Jelly Belly Jelly Beans. Yeah. And that was sort of David Klein's thing. So I think this campaign was as much exposure as it got. It was picked up by the AP. It was on news across the the country. They always started with saying David Klein, founder and creator of Jelly Belly. Mm -hmm. I think that was his 
main thing here. Yeah. To get that recognition, the guy's 74, mm-hmm. created these jelly beans 50 years ago. This is sort of his legacy. I think this was his last sort of effort to get the recognition he feels like he's kind of been gypped on over the last how many years when he made a bad deal for a company that's now worth like $200 million. And so. to his achievements, in 1976, they start Jelly Belly, and he starts it with $800. And so to buy 1980, selling it for $4.8 million, I think is an incredible achievement. And what is crazy, you're right, like uh, there was a documentary made. A lot of uh, his son has come out and talked about how regardless of how much money he made, he is most disappointed in that not only is he not remembered for that, but like it's been nothing but um, seller's remorse and problematic products that have failed to launch. Like Bad ideas. Uh, bad ideas, yeah. He's had... Uh, salt, like sugar-free saltwater taffy, sour licorice. He's had a lot of failures out there. And so I think that this is a really cool story of like one hitting, um, or at least not one hitting, but at least one marketing uh, attempt hitting. Edible sand. Do you're, are you, I've never heard of this before. Are your kids it, into this? Uh, no, it is. It, it's sugar. Like to call it okay. edible sand, like uh, <laughs> it's like uh, it comes in these like, uh, like <clears throat> they look like ketchup bottles. Okay. And there are different colors, different flavors. And uh, basically you get these tubes and you fill the tubes with various colors. And, uh, okay. you know, then you hit the different flavors. Like I've seen them at carnivals, stuff like that. It actually reminds me of at Jelly Belly where you could go and like fill your own bag with different flavors, stuff mm-hmm. like that. It kind of reminds me of that. But I mean, if you look at their website too, it is like, <laughs> I mean, you can buy like five kits and you get like a bunch of flavors and tubes. Like they weren't, you know, they weren't blowing the doors off these. Edible sand market. Okay, Um, but if he invented this product and you're saying that like all he cares about is his reputation within the industry and being like identified for his achievements, like so he's going to take his business and just leave it in the hands as his legacy to some random dude on the Internet that just solved a riddle. No, that makes no sense. That's but that's the legacy. That's the legacy yeah. is like is you uh he would rather if you associate his name with this marketing campaign and that's what you're talking about that's all that he cares about. David Klein, if you are watching, give us a call. We want to talk to you. We have so many questions. You will invite you on the podcast whatever you want. Yeah. We just I mean, have to get to the bottom of we this. We typically we don't have guests though. But we would. Yeah. We would have Oh, we'll have this guy. On. The we'll candy man. You're outvoted. We'll take yeah. curated comments from him. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, no, to your point Just about... Just because we need to have Anna soften on this guy a little bit. Yeah. I like, would I love we're, to. We're, yeah. we're kind of in the same I would place. Love she's to. still... Yeah. She's not, my, she's not I would love to take my black heart. Yeah. Your first just, question yeah. is going to be like, tell us the truth, Mr. Klein. <laughs> uh, you never man. meant to give that factory away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your real legacy? Um, I think part of it... So he, they sell off in 1980. And uh, to your point about President Reagan loving Jelly Bellies... In 1981, the next year, they order 7,000 pounds of Jelly Bellies for his inauguration, and that's when Jelly Belly blew up. Like, actually, if you guys have ever taken the tour uh, of the Jelly Belly factory, they actually have uh, a photo of Reagan in made out of Jelly Bellies. It's amazing. It's wow. a beautiful mosaic. Um, so it was uh, a big part of the story, which was covered in the Kokomo Tribune, which I highly recommend reading, and maybe you'll soften even more, Anna. But uh, so Klein and his business partner, partner, this woman, Stephanie 30 Acre, drove around the country hiding these tickets in every state and then creating the riddles. And 
I mean, uh, there was a lot of people. They they limited registrations to a thousand people per state. Whoever yeah. wanted, you know, got the like riddles the, were boss. Like yeah. I saw how hard the last clue was. Yeah, and it got to the point where like it wasn't even going to be solved, mm-hmm. and so they had to give hints. And just how he figured it out was, I mean, there's even like a Beach Boys connection. It's amazing. It was really good. Yeah. And I mean, this guy, he actually registered and failed to solve, uh, to find the golden ticket in Colorado, Kansas, Wyoming, and South Dakota. I mean, uh, Klein said that basically he gave away a factory and $250,000, but he feels like he actually did some good during COVID. Because that's another thing is that this was kind of going on when nobody else was doing anything. So what I would also say is go to thegoldenticket.com, and there's actually, it's about an hour long. The documentary. The documentary on David yeah. Klein. Mm-hmm. You might feel differently, Anna, because mm-hmm. you have an hour to spare. Do you guys think, now this is a little bit far-fetched also, but uh, you know in Willy Wonka when like uh, Charlie Bucket's true test was that he didn't sell that gobstopper to Slugworth? Oh, so mm-hmm. is the true, true test if he sells it? Yeah, if he sells the factory back to... David Klein's lawyer assistant, mm-hmm. Slugworth. So, I don't know. Uh, Slugworth is 30 acre here. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Yeah. So if and if he does indeed decide to keep the factory, he actually wins so much more. Yeah. Like the keys to the kingdom of what was it? Uh, sour licorice. And uh, David Klein does not have a lot to give. <laughs> he doesn't have an elevator that functions as an airplane. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. We well, got to get off this topic. I don't think so. I will talk this man all day. Yeah, I would yeah. agree. He is, he is very intriguing. All right. <clears throat> well, let's move on to In Case You Missed It. And I wanted to start, In Case You Missed It, a little bit different this week because we actually had a recommendation from a listener who wanted us to cover a particular story. And oh. if you guys are cool with it, uh, we'll cover that one first. Sound good? Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, faithful listener Doug wanted us to cover the story more people are eating bugs. And as soon as he sent it, I was like, yeah, we're going to absolutely talk about that. <laughs> so insect farming is a rapidly growing industry. Let me pause for a second because I'm going to forget otherwise. If anyone actually has other stories that they want us to cover, send them in. And yeah. we might do it, depending on how this stuff goes off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Where did I leave off? Insect farming is a rapidly growing industry. Hundreds of companies worldwide are rearing insects at industrial scales. The industry is expected to be valued at $1.18 billion by 2023. Now, these are farmed insects that are called mini livestock. They're mostly crickets and mealworms raised for the sole purpose of being sold as food or animal feed. Now, these are not novelties, but used to create high-protein insect powder that can be used in anything from breads to buns, pasta, and protein bars. Some products are already available in the U.S. Who knows? Maybe we're already eating them. I feel like that should be better labeled. Now, the question is whether or not insect farming is ethical. An entomologist from National Taiwan University says... The well-being of trillions of creatures is at stake. <laughs> now, one, co- one cow produces as much meat as 900,000 crickets. Jeff, how do you feel about the well-being of these trillions of crickets and mealworms? I don't. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, 
you know, looking through the article, it does look like they're being really as ethical as you are with any other livestock. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it doesn't look like they're being starved. They're obviously being fed and just harvested like you would a cow, a pig, Mm -hmm. a duck, um, a goose. So I don't feel anything there. I think it's interesting when you look at the size of this market and how it is growing and also the different applications for it. Yeah. It's not just about putting crickets out on the table for supper. It's about <laughs> yeah. the fact that this can also be a low-cost food, fertilizer, other things like that. They can also be used to get rid of waste products yes. on a lot of uh, farms and agricultural businesses. So I think overall it's a net positive. I understand. My bigger concern would be from a safety perspective, like what happens if you've got a, you know, a million of these flies that get out or all of a sudden, you know, the crickets get out and they start decimating cornfields. So that would be a bigger concern for me in terms of this growth. Initially, when I started looking at this, I thought this was going to be about, again, raising them as food, mm-hmm. which you can. I know Eric has told us some interesting stories about eating crickets at a bar. Yeah. yeah. Um, going to town on those. So Podcast producer Eric Sorensen. Yes. Going to town on those? Cleaning, cleaning cricket legs out of his teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as far as the ethical element, I don't have any issues there. I think it's an interesting business dynamic. Just would be more most concerned about the safety parameters in terms yeah. of making sure these things don't get out. We did a story about cows wandering downtown. Yeah, they were a little bit easier to corral. Yeah, I mean, what was it? Thirteen cows. So that's like what just under thirteen million crickets. If uh, <laughs> we're doing a little bit bigger uh, issue. Uh, actually, part of it that I found really interesting as well was how they could raise these. Um, actually, raise the insects. Uh, that are taking care of food remainder food waste. Yeah. I thought that was really cool in terms of like a supply chain deal. Um, so Anna, is it ethical? I mean, is any type of factory farming of animals ethical? I don't know. That's a, I, I was really hoping to not get into this. Do you feel um, different about it? Cause it's a bug because it's an insect. Yeah. As you, so uh, you guys know, but like I've been a vegetarian for more than 20 years, mm-hmm. um, mostly for ethical reasons. Uh, I, I, I only use uh, plant-based chaps. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the right thing to do. Because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I have mixed feelings. I do think that, that be, because of the explosive population growth on the planet, that this is the trend, like that we're going in this direction. Mm-hmm. I don't think with that that it's reasonable or feasible for us to support the growth of the population without coming up with new and innovative protein substitutes, which they're doing a lot in labs and a lot with plants. Um, uh, If insects are going to be a viable replacement for some, uh, you know, for cows and things that are going to be harder and harder to get, I would think as we go on are more expensive, Mm -hmm. then yeah, maybe it works. I don't know. I'm not like interested in it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll just uh, like watch. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Now this is another point from the argument or from the uh, article that kind of blew me away. Uh, so one uh, researcher said that the number of insects already killed to make plant-based diets is actually going to be the same for people with an insect-based diet. That's believable to me. Um, if you think about all the pesticides and things, and then when you harvest and all all the you know insects and things that get washed off. and mm-hmm. um, Or don't. Or don't, yeah. yeah. Uh, but still, yeah, that's a uh, that's pretty interesting stat. Yeah, no, it was... Uh, Jeff, what did you think of that? I know that, I mean, uh, I don't have a plant-based diet, but I still eat plenty of plants. And when I heard that, I was like, 
well, what do you mean? <laughs> well, did you know there's actually an FDA standard for the acceptable parts per million of insects in any mm-hmm. given food product? So they're already in there a little bit. Yeah. No, not like we're planning for yeah, it. Exactly. But, I mean, we have been um, taking care of those. So again, I think it's just a really interesting business model in mm-hmm. terms of the different mm-hmm. applications for this and the different ways that you can make use of a readily available resource. Yeah. Insect-based chaps. Cricket chaps. Yeah, cricket chaps. Mm-hmm. I would I would have a cricket chaps would better a, before you, a mealworm chap. Do you have a spider farm so you can harvest all the webs for? Could you make chaps out of spider web? Ooh. Possibly. I would. You know what? I would if I was going to do my own farming. It would definitely be like mealworms before anything else. Oh, what? Well, just I feel like that would be yeah. easier. Yeah. You know, like I feel like I feel like managing a cricket farm sounds like yeah. a nightmare. Yeah, it does. That I mean, if anything were to get out. Like yeah. mealworms, they're just like they just they yeah. just like pick yeah. them up and like toss them back in. <laughs> they're making a run for it. Twelve hours yeah. later, they're a foot away. Yeah, yeah, I tried to catch a cricket the other day for my son's little like insect farm. Yeah, didn't make it. No, no, too hard. Uh, Jeff, before we uh, leave this topic, how many dinner parties do you pull out the acceptable parts per million stat? Pretty regularly, <laughs> especially when like the kids have friends over. It's a big hit. Yeah. yeah. Hey, enjoy the Cheetos. You know. <laughs> It's acceptable for there to be at least three crickets in there. You are going to be eating a couple spiders. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again, loyal listener, Doug. Uh, We hope we did did you a service. All right. Uh, Service to the story. Hmm, Those both sound bad. All right. Anna, what is your in case you missed it this week? Uh, Sure. So Walmart has unveiled a new program that it's calling Built for Better. It's an attempt to make it easier for shoppers to identify products that Walmart says are good for their families, the people who made them, and the planet. Mm -hmm. So basically, it works like this. Walmart has identified about 2,000 products so far, they say, that fit the bill based on third-party standards. And they will be affixing them with tags. Mm -hmm. So customers don't have to spend a bunch of time like reading labels if they're looking for something specific, like a controversial chemical or parabens are really, you know, kind of falling out of favor with people. So. Um, so I thought that was an interesting story. I was really surprised we didn't get any comments on the website because I know people get real fussy about the idea of picking winners and losers. And I, you know, it was just, Mm -hmm. I I know Walmart says it's following the identification process of third parties to say whether these products are better for you or for the environment. And I'm glad they're taking the step. However, (laughs) I'd wager that putting a big gold star on thousands of products that are probably more expensive than some of Walmart's other options is maybe going to help Walmart, too. Yeah. So (laughs) it's also, I think, a way for Walmart to go after like that target demographic that is like less price conscious, um, more likely to buy higher priced goods based on sustainability or, you know, natural ingredients or something like that. So um, the reaction from consumer environmental groups were like, eh, you know, mm-hmm. like try harder. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a step. I don't know. Like I agree that there's a lot more that they can do and other retailers can do from like a supply chain standpoint um, or starting from the ground up, you know, seems sort of like a Band-Aid thing. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Like what did you think when you saw this story? Super skeptical of Walmart. Yeah. Because, for sure, yeah. Oh, because just in um, – couple different markets that I've been in. We've talked to suppliers who are trying to get into Walmart or either currently working with them. Mm-hmm. And the way that those suppliers just get beat up every time. On margin. On, yeah. on margin, mm-hmm. quantities, delivery day, all that kind of stuff. To me, this just smells like, hey, you know what? We got we do have some of these key suppliers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We do have to kind of take care of them. Let's like you said, let's put a gold star on their stuff. Mm-hmm. Make yeah. them feel better about the fact that we're basically crushing them every time they walk into the building. Right. Yeah. That's what this feels like to right. me to sort of keep them in good favor with some of these folks because 
Walmart, although they do have a huge e-commerce building, uh, commerce business, they still rely a lot on brick and mortar mm -hmm. um, customer support. Mm -hmm. So they still need those suppliers working with them, putting stuff on the shelf. This feels like a program to make those guys feel better about a lot of the abuse that they get otherwise. Cou yeah. Couched in Walmart, like, uh, like yeah. giving back. Yeah. 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 Bankrupting Dean. Um, <clears throat> I like the idea. I like the basic idea because when I'm shopping, I would like to, you know, when you're buying $400 worth of groceries, you'd like if they made the uh, the selection a little bit easier in terms of like, all right, this one's a little bit more expen expensive, but maybe a more ethical purchase. And like mm -hmm. you try and be an informed consumer in like, you know, meat and, you know, but you can't be in everything. Mm -hmm. So if it's legitimate, I like the idea. But again, you see the brand associated with it and there's immediate skepticism. Well, and you look back at some of Walmart's like other initiatives over the years. And I remember, I, I don't know if you guys remember, they took a lot of flack this was maybe like 10 years ago, but um, on this like made in the USA initiative oh, that they mm -hmm. had, like we, they were like, we are selling X tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of products that are made in the USA. But if you looked into the detail, like a lot of those were food, they included food mm -hmm. um, in that, uh, which would build up a big, <laughs> a big baseline there for you. Um, and so people, I think like rightfully so were like, well, you know, this is how, you know, the term greenwashing, I think, like gets applicably used, but people are turned off by that. And right. so yeah. it is concerning. You, you do wonder, you know, as Jeff said, like here, you know, you got these suppliers that are probably like, we are the most expensive of X product that you have. Like, how are we going to improve our sales rates? And this would be a good way. Yeah. The gold star. I would, uh, I'd like the more transparency around that third party that is making these recommendations or, yeah. or whatever. And how the, uh, how it's funded. The research. Sure. All right. Uh, Jeff, what's your in case you missed it this week? So I thought this was a pretty cool one. Talking about aluminum wrap used to protect homes in wildfires. So basically, we've been talking a lot about the wildfires out west, California, Nevada, Oregon had some horrible stuff going on. And basically, a product has been developed and it's not that different than basically the aluminum foil you buy for leftovers and mm -hmm. used for use when you're cooking. But it can be wrapped around a house. It's obviously industrial grade. It's not inexpensive. But when they looked at the one case here where it was an individual just outside Nevada or just outside Reno, he had a, um, let me see here, he had a 1,400 square foot home mm -hmm. worth about $700,000. He had to pay six grand to wrap it in this aluminum foil to protect it from this fire. Yeah. Thankfully, the fire never got there. Mm -hmm. But if it would have, they think this would have worked. To me, this just seems like a really novel approach when you have folks spending a lot of money on these vacation mm -hmm. homes or other places <clears throat> or just their home, like where they live. Yeah. Um, you would hope maybe insurance companies can get on board here a little bit. Yeah. And realize, you know what? Um, maybe we spring for a couple thousand dollars in aluminum wrap and help them do this and do it right. Mm -hmm. Get a contractor involved or a service company involved to help preserve some of these people's homes, whether it's a vacation home or where, where they live. And not just that, other structures too. They talked about protecting some historically significant uh, yeah. um, buildings as well. So I just thought it was a really cool approach with something that we already have, mm -hmm. made it a little bit better, had a really positive result. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the picture, I mean, if you could imagine wrapping a house in tinfoil, yeah. that is exactly what it looks oh, like. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It looks like the beginning of like a gingerbread house. Exa yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, um, I actually covered uh, this technology when they were developing it at a uh, university level. I can't remember where it was um, initially, but it was crazy because it was all these students basically building sheds in the woods, covering them in this foil, 
as a wildfire came in. It was it's crazy. And uh, no, I definitely that's the one thing I thought about though, Jeff is who's going to pay for it. Like you almost think that if you live in a wildfire zone, that this becomes a part of you, like your insurance policy, where if you buy this policy, mm-hmm. a team will come out and wrap your house. Because yeah. if it is a seven hundred thousand dollar house, I mean, everybody wins if the house gets wrapped and it works because that was one thing like when it was on the R&D side and maybe it's come a little bit lo- uh, further was that there was still a fair amount of like uh, damage to the outside um, mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, the smoke wicking in between the seams, stuff like that. But I mean, I'm, maybe they uh, perfected some of that uh, because you'd still get this sort of black marks from wherever the uh, seams were. Um, but I still I think it's really cool. Anna, mm-hmm. How about mm-hmm. yourself? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, we've seen how scary this stuff can get and uh, more and more has happened as mm-hmm. the years go by. So I don't think that wildfires are getting any better. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, maybe it's something that gives people a little bit more peace of mind if they're thinking about building in those sort of zones. Uh, I don't know. Well, don't yeah. Know. And you can I mean, at this point, like people can say, like, don't live there. Yeah. But that's like that's not, reasonable. that's not a helpful suggestion. Right? Yeah. So like. Yeah. yeah. Well, even like we, you know, we talk about that that show Homestead Rescue. Mm-hmm. How many times do they do stuff when folks are kind of out there trying to live off the grid? Yeah. Wildfires take them out. I yeah. mean, that's all those folks have. I yeah. know like it's this. horrible. Yeah. All right. Uh, my, in case you missed it, this week was McDonald's phasing plastic toys out of Happy Meals. By 2025, McDonald's is going to drastically reduce the plastic in its Happy Meal toys. The company wants to switch to three dimensional cardboard superheroes. Kids can build or board games with plant-based or recycled plastic. McDonald's is also looking into using recycled plastic toys to make new restaurant trays. The move will reduce virgin plastic use by 90% compared to 2018 levels. Now, I was just wondering, if you can recycle the toys to make trays, why can't you recycle them to make cool toys? Anna? (laughs) I don't know, David. (laughs) (laughs) I just the reason that I was thinking about this is because uh, Burger King and other companies have already moved to like paper toys. And I don't know if uh, you bring your kids to like the Happy Meal treat every once in a while. But basically, McDonald's is the only one that isn't garbage. So like, you know, when we travel, we every once in a while get fast food. It's kind of like one of those cool things of being on the road. Mm -hmm. And I can say every fast food chain except McDonald's, I would just rather it wasn't in there Mm -hmm. because it was. I mean, for one, uh, one in particular, we got a cardboard, uh, a cardboard puzzle elephant, and it lasted all of the moment we put it together. And then it was like, "This is stupid!" Out the window. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, uh, I think there's still like elephant feet under the uh, the driver's side. But I was just the one thing McDonald's had going for it for me as a consumer was that I knew, like, the toys were well made enough that they would last. Like. Not only does he get it, but then it becomes a part of his toy collection. So having three kids who have gone through the Happy Meal phase, my feet wish this would have happened about 15 (laughs) years ago because I have stepped on more of these plastic toys. And to your point, they're extremely well made. So guess what? (laughs) I keep stepping on them. I kept stepping on them. They are the worst in that respect. But they are well made. But that's probably why they can't recycle them because they're too well made. made. It's like too thick of plastic. I mean, as far as from an environmental perspective, you can appreciate where McDonald's is going. Oh, yeah. What they're trying to do. From the kids' perspective, yeah, I don't know if the cardboard stuff is going to cut it. Yeah. Um, they may have to do something. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the, the other option is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as a parent, I would not be upset 
to see these things go away. Yeah. And if you haven't had to deal with stepping on them yet, you should be very happy Man, that they be- may be going away. Between these Happy Meal toys and the bees, your feet have taken a beating over the years. <laughs> the bees. Oh, you don't even know. <laughs> Legos? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh. No, we're very careful with the Legos. Um, the other thing I was just uh, kind of curious about, I mean, and don't get me wrong, from the environmental perspective, how many toys are they making if they can cut 90% of virgin plastic use by doing this? I mean, well, that's incredible. Their virgin plastic use. Yeah. Um, true. I mean, sorry, that's what yeah. I meant. Yeah, theirs. Um, the other thing was that they are investigating using things like recycled bottles to make plush toys and other more eco-friendly plastic toys. But I guess, like, the la- the bit, the thing I thought of was, like, either make a quality toy or just don't make anything. And because even if it is cardboard or paper waste or bio-friendly waste, if it's garbage, don't do it. I, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. stuff might be more appealing to like a, a kid of an older age. Like your, you know, your oldest is three. You yeah. probably can't like build the rocket ship out of cardboard, but my six-year-old can. You know what I mean? So yeah. Like, but yeah. like beyond that, do they keep the rocket ship then? It sits in our house until I throw it away and then they find it in the garbage and are mad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I See, away a lot of those things. Clean yeah. it up. Whoops. Oop, that was an Whoops. accident. <laughs> Sorry, all those Shrek toys, I don't know where they went either. So my mom kept my yeah. mom kept all of our McDonald's Happy Meal toys from when we were little because mm-hmm. they used to be really nice. Yeah. Um, so like all the California raisins. Yeah, uh, that was Hardee's, whatever. Was it? Okay, yeah. well, those are in there. Um, the chicken nuggets with the, like the outfits on. And oh, there yeah. was like a cop and there was a, I don't remember, a pilot or something. There was, um, we have all those. So she still has them and now my kids play with them. So like, I know that that's like a, cool. kind of ruins the rage against the plastic toys. Argument. Yeah, I think but the, it, part of the reason they want to get rid of them is because they just become garbage. Landfill yeah. stuff. Yeah. No, yeah. I totally agree. Um, and I, I, you know, for every one that gets kept and you know over the years there's probably 15 of me yeah i I mean even uh with the space jam toys that they just had like Mm -hmm. going into the daycare parking lot you just see like oh that's a devastated space jam ball right there yep some kid (sighs) just threw it out the window and it probably was gonna pop my tire remember when we saw the doll in the dumpster yeah yeah there's nothing there's nothing more sad than (laughs) a daycare dumpster like toy story three just nailed it Everything that about the it. Saddest thing. But uh, no, to your point, like if they make, I don't know, uh, I think if you make a more quality product, people will appreciate it and it might has, stand a chance to stick around as long as the kids clean it up. I <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Let's move on to our final thoughts this week. Uh, Jeff, do you have a final thought this week? So you brought up the Hornets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was cutting the grass last night mm-hmm. and there is just like, I feel like there's a, a sci-fi movie brewing in my in my yard because they were just like waiting for me. They were all just like right around the hole, just kind of swarming, they know what you did. just yeah. like ready. And I think I said I've emptied like three cans of like the wasp killer stuff on this hole on this hive. Nothing. They're just laughing at me. Oh my goodness! So there is an understanding between man and beast that I just leave them alone, yeah. and they will leave me alone. Because I was thinking about going out there again, and they're like they're just waiting. Yeah. And then I noticed like another hive way up on the house. So at some point, oh, no. that's going to be an adventure too. Oh no! Yeah, you you, wait till it freezes and then just knock it off. Yeah, you got to take care of that. Um, my goodness! So the any saga tips, continues. Any tips on getting rid of hornet's nest? Mm-hmm. I am wide open. Uh, the one in the ground, just pour a bunch of gas on it, light on fire. There's a tree right there, David. Just don't splash I, the tree. Okay. Yeah. 
It's, we'll a, put up it's a, just like that. We'll put up a barrier. That's how I become one of our safety stories that we cover. I will get it. We'll get it. Uh, Anna, your final thought this week. Okay, so after after this, I'm going to look up uh, how to take out a hornet's nest. And then also like try to find a URL for our new business, which is either going to be veggiechaps.com, mm-hmm. plantchaps.com. Plantchaps. Or- <laughs> I'm glad to hear it's a little more lighthearted because you were kind of – a dark heart on this episode. You kind of took it down. Guys, I I just, when you are a candy maker. <laughs> <laughs> you got to realize you have a responsibility. You have a mm. responsibility to the people that work in your facility. And running a food plant is not a joke, you guys. Mm-hmm. You can't just mm-hmm. give that away as a prize. He doesn't know anything about P&Ls for a food plant. I mean. Does he? he I mean, I feel like he can bring him up to speed. He sounds like a smart guy if he solved this riddle. Okay, so next time um, we're in search of a new executive for our team, mm-hmm. let's do some sort of weird scavenger hunt. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. I like where this is going. Yeah, I'll start writing the riddles now. I am sorry, I <clears throat> said it. Um, I'm not sure who had mentioned the uh, spider farming as part of it, but uh, one reader did suggest silk chaps as part of a product line. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because then we have the plant-based. That might give you a really unique customer base. I mean, I feel like we're just like (laughs) stealing market share from yoga pants. In 20 years when we have one pair. (laughs) (laughs) It took a significant amount of silk. (laughs) A lot of webs. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, my final thought this week is that uh, um, I know that we talk a lot about the labor shortages and how difficult it is for people to find work. And I just want to talk about how difficult it is to keep kids in daycare. And uh, <laughs> because right now there's a lot of daycares that aren't even staffed. Some are closed right now. Yeah. We're lucky enough to have one of the good ones that has uh, been able to keep the doors open. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just, you know, I've really felt for a lot of people that have maybe decided that, you know, they don't have the luxury of working from home. And uh, I definitely understood this week that, you know, some careers are just not tenable right now as a result of the lack of access to daycare. For sure. And uh, I just feel like that's very unfortunate. Um, on the brighter side, last week I was talking about going to the first concert in about two years, and it was A, amazing. It what was fantastic. Was it? I, uh, I missed I went the to, podcast last week. Oh, <laughs> that's all right. See, when I missed the podcast, I listened to it. <laughs> um, no, but uh, that's you, David. If David is not here next week, <laughs> you do you. I uh, everybody no, I just see, got really uncomfortable in here. I went to see uh, Run the Jewels at Summerfest. Nice, and uh, A really enjoyed it. Uh, B, it was my first concert in two years. It was their second in three. So they were kicking some rust off, but still had it. Like, and he he came out and said, just like, "Hey, we've done this twice in three years." So thanks. <laughs> the other thing is that um, COVID concerts not a bad thing because everyone's kind of like normally you're just on top of each other. Yeah. And uh, this was people were kind of keeping their space and just like just kind of give the nod and you're like, "All right, that's I'll nice." Take another step. Yeah. Was, uh, really enjoyed it though. Cool. All right. Uh, anything else before we get out of here? No, not after that public shaming. (laughs) I'm very sorry, and I'll be more sorry later. All right. Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. To email the podcast, if you have any story ideas you want us to cover, and in case you missed it, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Make sure you get it in your inbox first. All right. 
For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.